from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Archbishop for the organization Military Services USA says Catholic troops should be allowed to refuse COVID-19 vaccines. Archbishop Timothy Broglio says refusals should be allowed if, quote, it would violate the sanctity of his or her conscience. This statement comes after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced in August that vaccines are mandatory for troops. Each service has set its own deadlines for active duty and reserve forces to get the vaccine. The CIA has a new China mission center. The creation of that center signals that the agency is pivoting national security toward competition with great powers like China. CIA Director William Burns says the new center will bridge capabilities across the agency to better respond to threats from Beijing. The CIA wants to reduce how long prospective employees have to wait before joining the agency. Officials say the new center will also likely help with recruitment. The National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO, is looking to more quickly purchase commercial space technology. The office plans to release a new broad agency announcement, or BAA, in the next month. The BAA will allow the agency to buy emerging technologies as they become available. It will also give new companies a chance to work with the agency. The intelligence community formed the Commercial Space Council last year to learn how to work more closely with the expanding space industry. But officials are still concerned about the security of commercial products and data. At the annual conference of the Association of the United States Army, or AUSA, I spoke with Brigadier General John Rafferty, director of the Long Range Precision Fires Cross-Functional Team. That team, part of the Army Futures Command, is a high priority for the Army's modernization efforts. Here's a look at our discussion. General Rafferty, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So explain the mission of long-range precision fires and how it fits into the Army's modernization efforts. So that's a, that's a great opening question because uh, it really allows us to kind of set the context of the Army modernization priorities against the pacing threat. Uh, and so, you know, more than four years ago, the Army started to recognize that, um, that while we had been consumed with operations in the Middle East, our adversaries uh, went to school on how we fight. Uh, and started to invest in areas that, uh, that offset our advantage. And our, off our advantage at the strategic level is fighting as a joint force, uh, and at the tactical level it's fighting as a combined arms team. Uh, and using a, um, you know, a fire-centric approach to, to offsetting our advantage by integrating uh, sophisticated air defense with long-range artillery, uh, at the tactical level it breaks up our combined arms team, separates us, uh, and at the strategic level, it separates us as a joint force and prevents access to the operating area. And so looked, uh, viewed with, you know, through that lens, uh, that's how long-range precision fires emerged as the number one modernization priority, because it enables uh, multi-domain operations, uh, both at the strategic level in, in, in uh, penetrating and disintegrating anti-access and area denial systems, and then all the way down to the tactical echelon where it, uh, where it um, degrades the enemy's layered standoff by, uh, by defeating uh, long-range artillery that's, that I said is defended by those sophisticated air defenses. So I want to ask you about that A2AD, right? So what you just mentioned, anti-access area, area denial. 
Explain what that is, because that's a strategy that adversaries are, are using. Yeah, so it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's sort of a noun and a verb, right? So it's, uh, uh, it, it refers in some cases to systems uh, that our adversaries are, are, are building. So uh, very sophisticated, integrated air defense systems that, uh, uh, that uh, in some cases uh, are uh, projected uh, whether on ships or on islands in the in the Indo-Pacom region, uh, to deny access to the to the operating area, they they uh, they can extend this effect out, uh, and that's really where it's a verb, right? So so they are they are denying access, and they are uh, they are um, uh, they're eliminating our ability to penetrate uh, the airspace or the maritime space or in some cases uh, land space and cyberspace so um, or at so, least hold us off until yeah, so, they're so, able to do whatever absolutely. they need to do so the best way I've heard it described was the old uh, trade-out commander he he put his arm out like this and he would say it's layered enemy standoff and that's that really is what they're doing is keeping us at arm's length uh, so that um, so that we can't do what we do best which is in the army it's fight as a combined arms team and, and the, the reason why it's that's uh, such a big advantage for us and why very few other armies can do it at any scale is is it's uh, it takes a professional non-commissioned officer corps which uh, which our army has which is really the envy of the world uh, it takes uh, it takes uh, dedicated uh, training sites like the National Training Center in California, the Joint Readiness Training Center at, uh, at, in Louisiana, and the, the Joint Multinational Readiness Center in, in Europe, where we can focus uh, and expend a lot of resources uh, training uh, combined arms units to conduct, you know, combined arms uh, maneuver under live fire conditions. Uh, and um, and when we're that's that's what we do best. And if they can hold us at arm's length and separate us at echelon, uh, then uh, then that. And that's where long-range precision fire comes in to defeat that. Yes. How long-range are we talking about and how precise are we talking about? So I would rather use the term accurate than, than precise, but it's, you know, it's already baked into our title, so we, we live with it. The acronym uh, is there. You can't yeah, change it now. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Uh, but sometimes precision gives people the wrong, the wrong idea, right? They think that we're, we're, uh, we're fighting the last fight, right? I mean, there's so much in, in a counterinsurgency environment that was associated with, with precision and uh, minimizing collateral damage and things like that. Well, that's always going to be, uh, you know, an, an, an item of interest for us. Uh, the, uh, the key is to be accurate. Uh, and so starting at the, you know, at the tactical echelon with our extended range cannon artillery system, um, we're going to have to use a course-correcting fuse on that, uh, on that round for it to be accurate at 70 kilometers, so about 43 miles. Uh, that's you know, significantly farther than, uh, than we shoot now. Right now we shoot about 30 to 35 kilometers, so really doubling our range uh, in our tactical formations. But is that enough, General, given the so distances we, yeah, in the so Indo-Pacom? But we don't do it by ourselves, right? So there's not one mm. system does it by itself. Uh, we have to think, a, you know, a combined arms approach uh, all the time. So it, at the, you know, in, in the division fight, we're thinking about, you know, enough of the, enough range uh, to begin to degrade this long-range artillery and air defense systems that then enable engagement by attack helicopters and close air support and robotic combat vehicles and all that, right? So it, we're, our, our adversaries are fire-centric, right? They're built around the fire's warfighting function and, these, uh, and, and, and that's where the bulk of their investment is. Um, we're never going to match up system for system, cannon for cannon, uh, munition for munition. What we need is enough to, to, to degrade that advantage enough 
to allow us to take a combined arms uh, approach to the problem. Uh, working our way up, we've got the, uh, the Precision Strike Missile, which is our replacement to the Army Tactical Missile System, called ATACMS. Uh, the, uh, the Precision Strike Missile will have a range of more than 500 kilometers, uh, which compared to the ATACMS of 300 kilometers is, is pretty dramatic. Um, the other part of that is that uh, instead of one missile per launch pod container, so, so these, the missiles come in these packages called launch, launch pod containers, on our tracked launchers you can have two of those launch pod containers on there, and for ATACMS that would carry two missiles. Uh, for uh, the precision strike missile, it'll be two inside each, so we're really doubling the onboard firepower, reducing our logistics uh, um, uh, train considerably, and, uh, and they cost about the same. General, we're going to take a quick pause right here, and then we'll come back and continue our discussion. Coming next, more of my conversation with General Rafferty on improving the range and accuracy of Army weapons. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This week we attended the annual conference of the Association of the United States Army, or AUSA. Brigadier General Rafferty from the Army Futures Command spoke with me about the current programs underway in his office, the Long Range Precision Fires Cross-Functional Team. Here's more of that conversation. General Rafferty, tell me where you are in the development of these systems that you mentioned in the previous segment. Well, that's um, very happy to report some, some uh, recent success from the, uh, the Armament Center at Picatinny Arsenal. So that's part of our Army Futures Command family uh, under uh, what we call DEVCOM or Combat Capabilities Development Command. Uh, the Armament Center is, uh, is assembling our first 18 uh, prototype extended, ran, extended range cannon artillery systems. Uh, so these 18 prototypes will be delivered uh, to a battalion at Fort Bliss, Texas in 2023 uh, to begin a year-long operational assessment of how we're going to fight with these systems in a, uh, in a division context. Uh, that development is, we, we call IRCA a system uh, because it is. It's the platform, it's the supercharged propellant, it's the projectiles and it's the course correcting fuse that I talked about, uh, talked about earlier. Uh, so that system all has to be delivered at once for it to be a really a credible capability. Uh, and so our, uh, our challenge right now is keeping all that development on pace. Uh, our, our prototypes, uh, we uh, did a christening ceremony on prototypes uh, one and two a couple of weeks ago with the operational unit from, uh, from Fort Bliss, Texas. Uh, they came in and smashed a, a bottle of artillery punch on the chassis. That's always uh, fun. And it was something that was fantastic to celebrate with our workforce at Picatinny who really you know, showed incredible courage and commitment working through COVID when you know, that was essentially ground zero for the, for the U.S. Uh, uh, for about six months. Uh, but they didn't really lose much ground. They, they, you know, they persevered through those uh, those conditions, uh, and it was great to connect the operational force with our, you know, our Army engineer workforce uh, that are assembling these prototypes. So we'll start in 23 with a with a battalion set. Uh, all along the way, we'll have you know increasing number of soldier touch points to refine the design as we're as we're uh, you know fine tuning these uh, these prototypes and to begin to better understand how we're going to fight as a combined arms team with IRCA. The Precision Strike Missile, uh, we, just, um, we just reached Milestone B in that program, and so we're on a path to deliver the urgent material release of the first set of missiles in 2023 as well. Uh, so our, our, um, you know, our development, our production uh, is, um, you know, is, is peaking. Like we're really starting to ramp it up and, uh, and begin to... You, you mentioned soldier touch points. 
<clears throat> excuse me. Tell me about that and how that you're incorporating that in your testing. And at what point are, are, are you bringing in soldier touch points? Yeah, so I, I suppose the best way to answer that is early and often. Uh, and, uh, and this idea of soldier-centered design is fundamental to Army Futures Command. And one of our primary responsibilities in a cross-functional team is to connect the, uh, the user uh, with the material developer. Uh, and not wait until the end to start beginning at the beginning when that concept is being is being cooked up, uh, and then as early um, you know early engineering on the on the design is is also getting that same uh, soldier feedback, and, and then when there's something to actually put their hands on, uh, then the, really the magic starts to happen, and uh, the uh, when you see this engagement between you know engineers whether from industry whether from uh, from DevCom and uh, you know our, our our soldiers and non-commissioned officers in the field who are going to fight with the these things, uh, it's uh, it, it's incredibly powerful to see, and then you realize like we we can't do enough of these, uh, and so our uh, our soldier touch points are are like I said one of the one of the most important things we do in the, in the cross functional team, and and I think that they are probably uh, the thing we'll look back on in AFC and say that was the most valuable um, part of our contribution as a cross functional team. What about command and control? What are you doing in that uh, area? So we have to take an end-to-end -end approach to our to our systems. Uh, we know we need to see as far as we can shoot, uh, and we need to be able to to process data uh, and uh, process fire missions uh, much more quickly. So we refer to that as sensor to shooter, uh, and uh, and really what that means is is the amount of time from when a target is detected uh, until uh, until we're shooting uh, has got to be minimized. To meet the demands of large-scale ground combat in the future against uh, uh, against an adversary that, that may outnumber us, uh, we're going to have to move much more quickly than we do now, uh, and uh, and so we we need to use machines to help us with that to 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 augment uh, what humans are doing, not necessarily to replace them, uh, and so we have. And that's what I was going to ask you, which is data and artificial intelligence. Yes. That's what when that comes in. So part of the you know Army Futures Command team is the is the Army's artificial intelligence integration center at. Uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, and that's run by uh, Dr. Doug Maddy, and uh, and and his team has uh, ha, ha, is um, is not just helping us uh, create some systems that are powered by artificial intelligence to sort through data and find targets and and uh, work with uh, our our teammates in Army Intelligence and the ISR Task Force. Um, but uh, but they're also helping to educate a, a generation of data scientists who are going to be out in the in, data scientists in uniform, who are going to be out in the uh, in the army to help us um, to help us master uh, the use of uh, artificial intelligence in our tactical formations at, the, at what we call it the tactical edge. Well, best of luck, General Rafferty. Thank you so much for being yeah, with you. us. Thanks a lot. Up next, how to develop a vaccine for a virus you haven't seen yet. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Army's medical research on emerging diseases. We'll be right back. Research on the COVID-19 virus is just one piece of the work at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. The team there is working with the rest of the federal government and other partners to create new vaccines for emerging viruses. I sat down with Dr. Kayvon Majerid, director of the Emerging Infectious Diseases Branch at Walter Reed. Here's a look at our conversation. Dr. Majerid, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
So how do you go about creating a vaccine for a virus that you haven't seen yet? It's a great question. We have an idea of the viruses that are going to be coming. So we can develop a vaccine for coronaviruses. It's not like it's some imaginary viruses. Uh, we know the types of viruses, whether it's a coronavirus, whether it's a flavivirus, an Ebola virus, we know that those kinds of viruses are going to keep reappearing. They might be slightly different, but if we have a vaccine platform that's broad enough to cover the general category of viruses, then it doesn't matter what specific type you throw in there because you'll get an immune response that'll cover them all. So researchers have been trying to find a universal flu vaccine. Is this going to be easier? I wouldn't say finding any kind of universal vaccine is easy. Um, what we see with flu is a lot more diversity than we see with um, coronaviruses. An HIV vaccine has been elusive for decades. You could think of an HIV vaccine being a universal vaccine for each individual because the diversity of viruses for HIV within one individual is an order of magnitude greater than the diversity of viruses of all coronaviruses. So it is a, a much more feasible endeavor, but we have to demonstrate that we can cover all the variants of SARS-CoV-2 first. See, I was gonna ask you about the variants. Like, <laughs> yeah. We've been experiencing that with Delta and then we've got all the other Greek uh, letters going on. Yeah, exactly. On. So Beta, how do you Delta, up? Mu, yeah. Um, Viruses evolve, viruses mutate. That's something that we should anticipate. That's something that we should be prepared for. Um, and until this pandemic is over, until the virus stops circulating, it's not gonna stop mutating. Um, so we need next generation vaccines for even the current virus. That will be sort of a demonstration of how well we're doing in terms of getting to this universal coronavirus. Are we? getting a vaccine, next generation vaccine, that are going to cover all the potential variants. And then from there, all the SARS-like viruses, like SARS-1, SARS-2. There are a lot of SARS-like viruses in bat populations that we know of that haven't made the jump. Can we cover those first? We have to, I've said this before, we have to show that we can get to the moon before we can go to Mars. And that's what I mean by that. We need to get a vaccine that covers all the variants, all the SARS-like viruses, and then we get to a universal coronavirus. So where are you now in your clinical trials? Uh, we are just finishing up our clinical trial and now actually analyzing the data. Um, so we'll have an indication. How's it starting to look? It looks good. Um, and. Uh, uh, you know, everything that has been shown for other vaccines as well is that if you show consistently a good vaccine in multiple animal studies and then you show a good immune response in humans that kind of repeats what you saw in animal studies, then that eventually is going to be predictive of an effective vaccine. So right now we're seeing pretty good data, but I don't want to, you know, uh, be pre premature in my statements and we'd be happy to come back and talk about uh, the trial results when they're they're out in a few weeks but uh, so far indications are good these are human trials though. these are human trials that's right so how are you working with the rest of the federal government with academia with the global community on this effort yeah so this is a collaborative effort in the broadest sense uh, academia industry 
uh, other federal government agencies. Uh, we can't do this on our own. We don't, no scientist works in a vacuum. Um, and the way things were set up uh, in the context of what was originally called Operation Warp Speed, now the federal COVID response has built on prior uh, frameworks in which we tackled Zika, we tackled Ebola, and we've sort of gotten better each time. And we're not only interdigitating with other federal agencies, but we're now bringing in industry and academia to make it a truly public-private partnership. Um, and in order to get to a universal coronavirus vaccine, we need to kind of augment that even further. So there are probably about 20 groups around the world that are really seriously focused on developing a universal coronavirus vaccine. We're just one of them. And there are normative bodies that are bringing us together to have discussions and share data and information and see which one is maybe a better approach for one particular group of viruses versus another. Can you give me an overview of what the U.S. Army is doing in infectious diseases other than the vaccine? Sure. So our institute has been involved or developed two-thirds of the vaccines that are currently licensed in the U.S. today. So what we're doing now on respiratory viruses like COVID, um, influenza, other things that we've done recently in Zika, Ebola, is really just a continuation of a century-long legacy. All right. Well, Dr. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you again. Appreciate I appreciate it. it. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Contact us on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 p.m. on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.